Welcome to the Grow In Podcast, where we're in company with leaders from the world's best brands and share the next chapter of their growth story. I'm your host, Sandy Khan. In the first series, we grow in innovation in company with Accenture and co-host Head of Innovation for Europe, the brilliant Lucy Cooper. Lucy and I find out what it takes to become the first C-level innovation guru at one of the world's largest music record labels and what it means to take it to the next level. I've always been an entrepreneur. If I'm being honest, I had no clue how to run a record company. I was $3 million in debt. Losing all my money was just the beginning. I was essentially homeless. And in in my story, I invented nothing, but what I did was combine things. And I think that's more of innovation. Warner Music is wildly successful. All of our revenue and all of our activities is driven by tech companies. I almost never look at what's going on in the music industry to understand what's going on in the music industry. People never stop listening to music. And as a matter of fact, they're listening to more than ever. Okay, but how do you make money from this? From a business side, it actually was our biggest year ever. I've waited for this time for the last decade, which is blockchain. What if one by one, I took away your senses? What if we don't stop at five? What if we add a six one? I don't know what you're doing on your summer holidays, but for me, I'm implanting some chips in my body to give me a new sense. That is the Chief Innovation Officer at the Warner Music Group, predicting tomorrow's tech trends to innovate today. Real stories curated with love for you. Scott, welcome and thank you for being in company with Lucy and me. Scott, normally you're an American in London, but you managed to escape. And you're talking to us today from your second home in Italia. Very nice. Scott, I'm thrilled to bits to have you on because your profile always excites audiences. I know our listeners are in for a treat. I can say always excites our audiences because I've seen you in action, speaking at our leadership panels, plural. And the beauty I see in you, Scott, is that you're a natural storyteller. It's not just what you say, but it's how you say it. Maybe it's the American accent. Maybe it's your black and white, no nonsense style or the quiet confidence that comes with decades of experience. Perhaps it's the authenticity and the expletives that come with it. Maybe (laughs) your humility, an all-round nice guy, probably a combination of all those things. Bottom line, and what I've seen with my own eyes, is when you talk, people listen. You were born and grew up in the States, in New York? Born in Japan. Wow. Never judge a book by its cover. (laughs) So, you speak Japanese? No, but my father does, which is crazy. When we were kids and we'd go anywhere, like to a Japanese restaurant, and you have to imagine, you know, this short, kind of chubby, bald Jewish guy all of a sudden starts speaking fluent Japanese and the faces on the people go, oh my God. Um, So he does, I don't. What's your heritage? Even though I was born in Japan where I would consider myself 
a classic New York Jew with grandparents born in, you know, Eastern Europe, Russia, and immigrated in the early 1900s. A colorful background. <laughs> Your wife is Italian. You speak Italian? See. Quite, quite, a, quite, a, quite a bit of controversy marrying outside the family, so to speak. Of course, with your Jewish background. So you married outside. Do you speak Italian? Oh, really poorly. I'm learning because I want to get my Italian citizenship. So little by little, for a couple of years, I've been doing one-on-one tutor lessons by video. Bit by bit. You'll get there, Scott. Any other languages you aspire to learn? Japanese? No? Uh, English, English. I'm shit at that. Or as they say, <laughs> I'm shite at that. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I wonder, Scott, if you've always been, if you've always been entrepreneurial. I mean, were you born to be an entrepreneur? What what were you good at as you were growing up? What traits did you hone that attributed to your success as an entrepreneur? So take us, take us back to your childhood because it's our younger years that play a big part in shaping who we become later in life. Wow, we really are going back. So it, it's funny because I've always been an entrepreneur without really thinking about it. You know, my first kind of proper entrepreneurial job was we lived for a couple of years outside of Baltimore, Maryland in the States. And there was a, a big country club right next to our house. And I was 14 years old. I, I went in there and I would see what was happening every evening. People would come for these very formal events, you know, women with fur coats and all of that. And they'd go and hang them up in the coat room. And one day I went to the manager of the club and I was like, I'll tell you what, all these people come in, they're quite elegantly dressed, and then they just throw their coats in a coat room. How about I set up a little coat stand and you don't have to pay me anything. I'll only work for tips. And the manager, she was like, okay. So one evening, one Friday night, I set up my stand. I put a table to block the entrance of the coat room. So they would have to give me the coat. I'd give them a ticket with a number on it and then hang their coat up. And I put a little tip jar out in front. And I think the first night I did it, I made $100 cash. And I was 14 years old. And this is in the 70s. I don't know what that would <laughs> equate to today. But at 14, I was off to the races. and <laughs> I had a monopoly on the coat room. Yes. So you were born to be an entrepreneur, 14 years old. I love it. So 10 years after leaving university, you co-founded a startup called The Orchard. Tell us about the journey to The Orchard and at The Orchard. Wow. It's a super long story. So I'll tell part of it and just skip forward if you, if you don't like it. Back in the, in the mid 90s, I had this record company with a business partner of mine, Richard Goderer. Richard Goderer, super famous uh, guy in the music business. He was a, started as a songwriter in the 60s, wrote big hit songs like I Want Candy, which I don't know. Lucy, do you know that song, I Want Candy? Yes, of course. I Want Candy. Yeah, everyone knows that song. Okay. He wrote that. He produced a bunch of artists like, uh, I don't know, do you know like Blondie? Everybody knows Blondie. 
okay. <laughs> and, 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 and he started a record company called Sire Records with Seymour Stein. So Sire Records would have been like in the 70s, they had artists like the Ramones and the Pretenders and the Talking Heads. Do you know these? Yeah. Okay. And then Madonna. <laughs> yes, we kind of know her too. Yeah. I think we've heard of Madonna. So, so, so in the mid 90s, I, I was in the music business. I was just kind of a hustler in the music business as an artist manager. And Richard comes to me and we, we had become very fast friends. And he decided that we should open a record label together. And because of his background, I was... I was super excited because, you know, you don't often get to work with a, a legend and he was going to be my mentor and teach me how to run a record company. Because if I'm being honest, I had no clue how to run a record company, like no clue how to run a record company. So we started the record company within a few months. It became abundantly clear that we were possibly the worst record company on the planet. Because what Richard had failed to tell me was that although he founded Sire Records, he never ran Sire Records. He had no idea how to run a record company. And I think he was counting on me that somehow he thought I knew what I was doing and neither of us knew what the hell we were doing. <laughs> and I put all my money into this venture. Thanks, Richard. I put all my money into this venture and lost it all. I mean, I was completely bankrupt. That was it. And then as kind of a last ditch desperation, I thought, all right, let's use some new technology because it's free. And what we were taught, what I was talking about at the time was AOL, America Online. So we had a bunch of computers in the office. I think we had maybe as many as 10. And then we hired a bunch of unpaid college interns, university interns from NYU that wanted to be in the music business. I told them the story of Richard Goddard. They're like, wow, I'd love to work at this amazing record company. And we didn't tell them that it was a failure. And then we brought them into the office. We connected them to the World Wide Web via AOL. This is 1995. You know, if you think about what the web was in 1995, I mean, it was essentially text. There was no video. There wasn't even music playing. And if you wanted to see a photograph, I mean, as you were waiting for 15 minutes for the photograph to render, you know, it was like tick, 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 <laughs> tick. You know, after a couple of minutes, you start to see about where the eyebrows are as, <laughs> as, the, as the picture's coming into focus and go, oh, it's just some old bald guy. It was a very different experience. But what it allowed us to do was to have these interns go into these message boards where people were talking about music. And what we would have them do was, if they were talking about music in a genre of music that we had an artist on our record company, they could click on that username and then we could send them an email. And this, again, it's 1995. And we'd say, hey, if you like this band, you should check out this band on our record company. And in 1995, what was extraordinary was that we got essentially 100% response rate. 100%. Every time we sent an email, we got a response that usually started with, thank you. <laughs> because in 1995, 
that was often the first time they ever received an email. They never got an email before. And, and now, not only are they getting an email, you know, you've got mail. Very smart. It was a relevant, targeted marketing message. It was about the very thing they loved. And it was, it was almost like magic to them. And what was like magic to us was they started sending us $10 checks in the mail so we could send them a CD because we couldn't get our records into stores or radio. We've got no, no press or promotion. So we were only marketing online. And it started to show us, wait a minute, this uh, World Wide Web thing might be something we could look at. Based on that, in 1997, Richard and I started a company called The Orchard because we were on Orchard Street on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And it was the first digital distributor of music. We envisioned a world where people would be going online to air quotes stores to get music. And so we started. And what happened? It was quite early. We didn't think it through completely. I mean, in our excitement and enthusiasm opening up the orchard, we forgot a few basic things like one, we started a distribution company with absolutely no content. So it's hard to distribute something you don't actually have. So we had no rights and people didn't know what digital rights were. But even a more fundamental problem was there were no such thing as digital music stores. I mean, iTunes wasn't until March 2003. Napster, which was illegal, wasn't even until 1999. Brand new uncharted territory brings with it growing pains. So what were the most challenging experiences and the impact on you? It was a, a painful learning experience to get in a, to the digital music space early as the first digital distributor. Because when I thought I was completely broke and lost all my money in the record company, what I learned was that there's depths to poverty, that uh, losing all my money was just the beginning. Going deep into debt was the, the next level. At one point in my darkest period, I was $3 million in debt. $3 million. And to be clear, this wasn't, I raised $3 million because I had a great business plan and we had investors. It was like, no, this was personal. I owed people money. I'd lost my house, my car, all my possessions. And uh, I was essentially homeless. Uh, I was living in the office. Wow. By this point, it's already year 2000 and, and people are aware of us. We're getting billboard articles written about us. And we have everybody coming after us. We, we owed everybody money, the landlord, the, you know, the electric company. We owed the IRS. And when I say we owe the IRS, they kind of look at it differently. They don't think we owe them money. They, they use different terminology like tax evasion and tax fraud, um, where they throw people in prison for, you know, 10 or 20 years. That's just scary. You need to be pretty fearless to ride those waves. It was quite a struggle to be too early. But in the end, it, it all paid off. In the end, you know, it was a happy story. And, and we grew to, to be a, quite a large company. It's a teeny tiny bit more than just that. You were successful enough to be acquired by a mega music brand, no? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So at some point later in the 2000s, Richard and I started selling a little bits of it to both put some money in our pocket and get some growth capital, which was the most important thing. And then ultimately it was sold to Sony Music. And when I left the company in the beginning of 2019, it was already generating like a billion dollars in revenue. Amazing. That's such an amazing story. Maybe people skip through all this and fast forward it to whatever we're about to talk about. But well, that, I hope that, they that's don't. the long version. I hope they no, don't because it's I, about I innovation. Exactly. I'd say this is an inspirational rags to riches story. The Orchard, the very first digital store, continues to grow and be an amazing company. Hats off to you, Scott, and your co-founder, Richard. Your quest tested your resilience, your sheer grit, your gutsy creativity, your bravery. I need to get the two of you on stage at a future leadership panel. Dear listeners, watch this space. Two decades at The Orchard, the company you built from scratch, your baby. But in 2019, you left to join Warner Music Group. Why? I will back up. Because yes, it was an amazing amount of grit and tenacity and just being in really uncomfortable places for a very long time and sticking with it. With all that said, and no matter how much hard work and passion I had, let let me be absolutely clear that I come from a place of privilege, white, male, middle-class privilege. And the opportunity to do all that hard work was because of things that in my background that were nothing that I did, that I happened to be born into the right country, into the right family. I say the right sex and color, but you know what I mean? That that just gave me privilege that accelerated my possibilities. So I am uber aware of, of that. And that my struggles are often people's struggles before they even get into the position where they can succeed. So I I count myself as actually quite fortunate. You know what I think about that, Scott? I think it's awesome that you recognize your place of privilege. You're still an extraordinary human being and we've just scratched the surface. And yes, it's not a level playing field for everyone out there. That's life. We're not all given the same bag of ingredients to make something of our lives. But those who can still make something interesting and tasteful, they have a story. And everyone loves a story of struggle to success. Stories are sticky. And here you are. You have a super sticky success story. Why leave it? Oh, so, so why did I leave? Um, because I essentially did everything I needed to do there. I, I, I was done, you know, from an idea into building something that was a true reality to then being a large company. And then there were people that, that were running it. I wasn't running the day-to-day business at that point. It was fine. It was doing amazing. It was an amazing company with an amazing culture. We're like a family. And I just felt there was no more challenges there for me. When you joined Warner Music Group as the CIO, there was no handover. There was no rule book. This was a first time role. No one had done it before. So you had a big white blank piece of paper in front of you to fill with your ideas. I reckon 
it was the entrepreneur in you, you know, your ability to be visionary, comfortable with ambiguity, ask the right strategic questions, your sense of fearlessness and optimism, all of these super traits that entrepreneurs are blessed with. These traits must have kicked in and helped you to be the entrepreneur that you are today. I have a two-part question for you. Firstly, how did you create the vision and the innovation agenda? Did you do it collaboratively or did you take a directive approach? And the second part of my question is, how did you communicate your vision and agenda with impact, especially in a big, global, complex, matrix organization? You need people's attention and their trust. And you need them to dance with you. Everyone needs to tango and help you to help them. So let's start with how you created the vision first. (laughs) Well, in a way, it was easy because the role didn't exist. So whatever I did, that defined it. So on that sense, it was pretty easy. Max Lusada, who's the, the CEO of the company, who's really an amazing guy is the one that that had the vision to bring in a chief innovation officer kind of created that together and 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 a big part of what i do was recognizing that there was this wide gap between our business and the employees and the technology that we used as a company internally but also the technology that we have to interface with in the outside world. I mean, if you think about the music business, almost all of our revenue and all of our activities is driven by tech companies. If you think of like the digital stores like Amazon, Apple, Spotify, and Deezer to social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok, All of these are tech companies. That's what we deal with. You know, there was a time when we were dealing with radio stations and magazines and and CD stores, but that's a very small part of our business. And so my, my role is acting as that bridge between the technology either inside the company or outside and our employees and ensuring that I'm bringing the best I can to the organization. How are you communicating that vision internally? (laughs) So that was probably the biggest part of my, my challenge, not the vision, Bart. When I first joined, I would go around, you know, in a kind of listening tour, so to speak, all the leaders in the different departments and say, I'm now this new role, this chief innovation role. And everyone would come to me and like, oh, Thank God you're here. We really need innovation at this company. And then I go, yeah, good. So tell me about what you do. Oh, no, no, we're fine. It's those (laughs) other departments. So everyone wanted innovation. They just couldn't recognize that maybe they needed it in exactly what they were doing. So that that was a big part of the challenge. And so originally I was mostly speaking to the senior leadership, the way the business is structured, Warner Music Group is, is actually a collection of independently run record companies. I won't say independent as in indies, but independently run. There's Atlantic Records with a president, a staff, and the, their own artists they sign. But then there's 
Warner Records and Warner Nashville and Parlophone and Atlantic UK and Warner Germany. And so you, you have all of these companies that are run as independent entities. And I'm speaking pretty regularly to the presidents of all these companies. And that was, that was good. But then I realized that it's not necessarily filtering down. So then we said, okay, we need champions around all the technology. So if it's, a, if it's some tech or tools around the marketing teams, we need a champ for that and a champ for this. And, and so we created the bottom up and that was okay, but still didn't do it. So more recently, I've now hit the middle. So we created a, a tech and tools team where every label has assigned somebody with enough authority and seniority at the organization that's actually quite operational to also engage with me on a regular cadence where we're talking about all the tech and their needs and what's out there. And so now I'm hitting the organization from the top, the middle and the bottom. And hopefully this is it because I'm running out of people to, to target inside the organization. I think this should about do it. Scott, that's a lot of conversations with a lot of people. This is a relationship business then. All your soft skills and self-awareness need to kick in big time. It's an emotional business, so mountains of emotional intelligence is required. I'm guessing, despite your wisdom and seniority, if you want people to follow you, you, you can't tell them what to do. Like a loving parent, you might think you know what's best, but you can't talk at your children. And in today's workplace, people expect leadership equality. It's your job, Scott, to take people on a journey to innovate. But it's not a journey. It's more like a quest because no one knows the route exactly. It's a case of taking two steps forward, stop, assess if that looks or feels right, take a step back, take a sideways move. So continuous movement and incremental improvements. But a lot of people don't embrace change. They don't like the growing pains that come with it. So you must face challenges with getting buy-in from stakeholders all the time. How do you move through the resistance to change? It's interesting because, you know, you have to understand that the starting place is Warner Music is wildly successful. So when, when things are going well, to introduce change at first can seem an odd concept. I think about it in a, in a few ways. One is, you know, any ideas we may have can often seem quite revolutionary, but the change that comes from those ideas is actually quite evolutionary. It's quite, it's quite slow when you think about it. If you can imagine, you know, from the music side of it, in 1999, when Napster launches and people start downloading music, it wasn't that overnight the entire music business ended pre-COVID, 2019 CDs were still 20% of the music industry's revenue. So it's a long, slow shift from, oh my God, now it's downloads to streams and replacing something else. And the other thing to think about is, particularly from the music business side, is that it's always been in in kind of flux it's always it's always changed and always adapted so 
again, as a starting point to imagine that you were to rewind to the late 60s and you go, okay, now the music industry changed and they changed because of new technology, meaning FM radio, color television, and the album format, you know, because in the 50s, it was black and white, AM radio and singles. So change from the 50s to the 60s, but then all of a sudden you get into the 70s and now it's about portability and you have things like the 8-track and the cassette and the Walkman, which was an, an MP3 player that played cassettes. And so it changed again and all of a sudden that was the, the dominant format was portable music. But then you move into the 80s and it changed again because now it was all about MTV, which didn't exist in the previous decades. And the CD was introduced. And now you have the, a new format that's overtaken everything. And then you get into the 90s. And what happened in the 90s was the World Wide Web. And like I said, Napster comes along by the end of the 90s and again changes how the music industry works. And you get into the early 2000s. MTV is now replaced by YouTube and the iTunes music store comes in and all of a sudden people are downloading music and paying for it. But then you get into that next decade of the 2000s into the teens and it's like, who wants to download music when you can stream it? And social media becomes a, a dominant force. You have Facebook and Instagram and it changed again. And then all of a sudden you get into the 20s. It's like, Oh, no, now it's about TikTok videos and Roblox, and it's moving again. So we're in this constant evolutionary, but when you look at it, it is quite revolutionary. It's just not fast. It's every decade or so. There's these massive seismic shifts in the technology that change the music industry. And so a big part of my job is just talking with people to recognize this is the next shift and get comfortable with it. So the next shifts, let's go there. Look into your crystal ball, Scott. What's going to be game-changing for the industry and consumers in tomorrow's world? When I've listened to you speak at our leadership panels, you speak passionately about cryptocurrency. I've waited for this time for the last decade, which is blockchain. You know, we can have this pretty decent conversation around blockchain, but a year ago, we couldn't have, maybe even six months ago, we couldn't have until all of a sudden, you know, NFTs started kicking off. Blockchain technology has been around for, I guess, 11 years now. It's been used and Bitcoin has had its ups and downs and people are aware of it, but it's still been kind of this thing that other people use. And when the music business stepped into the space very recently at the beginning of this year with NFTs, non-fungible tokens, all of a sudden it came into the public consciousness and a whole bunch of issues came out. And, and this is what I really like about what's possible with the music business and, and artists being able to actually move culture. Because the first thing that came out was, wow, this isn't very eco-friendly. We're trying to reduce our carbon footprint by changing the way we tour. And if we put out one F NFT, it's like more than a decade of, of carbon on a tour. So all of a sudden now you hear blockchains talking about how they're going to be carbon neutral and changing that. Then people go, okay, I want to buy an NFT. Well, good luck getting on the blockchain because that is 
fucking hard, you know, to just open a wallet and verify yourself again. So now it's like, all right, if we're going to be selling NFTs, how are we going to change the on-ramp to make it really smooth? Like if you know how to use PayPal, then you can, you know, buy an NFT. The next stage is how it all becomes interoperable. If I buy things, how do I take it with me? Again, if you rewind, you know, in the early days of mobile or the early days of the web, you know, you couldn't communicate with people that weren't on your platform or even banking, you know, till cash machines, ATMs became interoperable. It didn't matter which bank you were on till you could email people on different networks till you could text message and call people on different networks and it became interoperable. Then everyone used it. It's not how it is right now on the blockchain and NFTs. But when I'm able to take something I bought and bring it into my social platform and then take it with me as I go into gaming and then move over to fitness and move it around with me and display it, then it'll change. And, I, and I'm happy to say that in many ways, the music industry, whether the artists realize it or not, seem to be driving that. Scott Cohen, Chief Innovation Officer at the Warner Music Group. Thank you. We're back after this. This series of The Growing Podcast is sponsored by Accenture. Accenture is a global professional services company with leading capabilities in digital, cloud, and security. Combining unmatched experience and specialized skills across more than 40 industries, they offer strategy and consulting, interactive, technology, and operations services all powered by the world's largest network of advanced technology and intelligent operations centers. Their 537,000 people deliver on the promise of technology and human ingenuity every day, serving clients in more than 120 countries. Accenture embraces the power of change to create value and shared success for their clients, people, shareholders, partners, and communities. In this series, we grow in innovation. So it made perfect sense for our co-host to be Accenture's EU head of innovation, the inspiring Lucy Cooper. Lucy Cooper leads innovation across Europe for Accenture. She believes that innovation comes from combining disruptive technologies with new business models and human ingenuity. And she's energized by working with Accenture's colleagues and clients to unlock 360 degree value so that they can win in markets and with stakeholders. Lucy focuses on challenges such as cultivating growth mindsets, scaling experimentation and developing breakthrough digital products, services, and business models. She enjoys sharing her perspective as a member of the World Economic Forum's Young Global Leaders Class of 2021. We continue to pour audio liquid gold into your ears with Lucy's innovation-driven dialogue with our storytelling leader, Scott. Before that is this. Here's my quick conversation with Lucy. On a personal level, we dissect some of the experiences, including failures, that have made Lucy the woman, the entrepreneur, the storyteller and leader she is today. Lucy is honest, Lucy is vulnerable and Lucy is playful in her responses to my questions and she injects her wisdom and tips 
for you. On a company level, Lucy describes what is important to Accenture and how the culture has helped her to grow and empowered her to help others to grow, both deeply important to Lucy. Lucy, let's talk about the F word, failure. Scott spoke openly about darker times in his life when everything was crumbling around him and he had to believe in himself in order to keep moving forward. And he demonstrated immense perseverance and resilience. He not only makes it through to the other side, but he prospers. He's a walking success story. I'd like to ask you to share a time or times in your life when things were not going to plan, when you had to believe in yourself and your vision, despite all the odds stacked up against you. What happened? How did you manage those experiences and grow? I mean, well, I've got a hundred and we don't have time for those today. And I love this question because I think people should talk about learning or failure or whatever you want to call it more and demystify it and de-emotion it. My mum died three months after I graduated from university and three months before I started work at Accenture, the first time I worked at Accenture. So I was sort of left grieving as I went into the workforce as a graduate when you're meant to be full of energy and on the top of your game. And that was like a real test of having to kind of dig deep and understand how I wanted to show up at work every day. And I mean, Accenture were amazing about it. And so I think that was a real test for me in kind of resilience and trying to, I think, take on a new look on your life. Okay, so this terrible thing. My mother had been sick for a very long time with cancer, but this thing had happened. I just graduated university. I just turned 21. Now I'm going to go into the workplace without my mother. So I think that was a very defining part of my life. And when people say to me now, you're very strong, you're very tough, you're very resilient. I think that part of my life is a big reason why I can sort of sit here and say that today. In between my two careers at Accenture, when I was in, I guess, the startup world, one way or another, that you want to call it, I mean, I had some extraordinary failures. So I kind of failed at being an entrepreneur. I I spent two years as this founding company of a startup in Silicon Valley and got it to a certain stage of growth and just thought, this isn't for me. And actually learning to listen to your gut and being like, I'm going to go back to London and I'm going to do something else, I think was a hugely scary thing for me. We'd raised a massive round. The company was growing incredibly quickly. I wasn't happy out in, at the time, LA, where we had settled the company. And so trying to learn to listen to your gut is not something that's always easy, but I think actually nine times out of 10, it's right. So I think meditation helps with this a lot of trying to figure out how to listen to your gut, I think is a really interesting one. And then I think how to learn to stand up for yourself and I guess not be pushed around. I think when I was working in small businesses in those five years between my two stints at Accenture, I think learning to stand up for what you believed in as a small business and the strategy you were trying to drive and what you thought was the right thing to do when you were often interacting with companies like much bigger than you was a real learning experience for me as well. Lucy, you've been so open with us. Losing a parent at any age is tough. So I can understand why, how the experience would have built resilience within you at such a young age. You've been very honest, just as Scott has been. Scott also recognizes that being a white male with the right socioeconomic status gave him advantages. As 
a young female leader in business, you didn't get to where you are by accident. So what's your secret? How do you take ownership of your growth? Do you have a, a plan, a vision, a strategy or a particular mindset? Firstly, let me say I'm also incredibly privileged. I am white. I am well-educated and middle class. And I have had an, every opportunity presented to me that I've been able to take hold of. And so I start from a position of enormous privilege as well. So do I have a vision? Do I have a plan? So firstly, I think I have got to where I am today with a little bit of luck. And I think one of my pieces of advice to people would be when you feel like you're being presented with an opportunity that is too good to turn down or makes you feel grateful and lucky to be offered it, take it, even if it makes you feel scared. If you're in a position to take it, take it. It's always easy to look back on your career retrospectively and go, oh yeah, that all fitted together very well. But at the time, there were many times when I took this huge leap, taking my huge leap out of Accenture to go to Y Combinator was a huge leap. Taking a huge leap back to London and being an in-house venture capitalist was a huge leap. But they were opportunities that were presented to me that made me feel very grateful and very lucky. So I think firstly, take those opportunities, I think would be some of my advice. I think on do I have a vision? Do I have a plan? I think if you spoke to 25-year-old me, she'd tell you her entire leadership vision. I think me now, actually, my plan is to be a better leader. What I want is to create teams of people who feel psychologically safe, who feel at home who feel they can come and do their best work and live their purposes and live their visions. The older I get, the more important that becomes to me because that's what matters, I think, when you look back at your career. You can talk about what you've amassed in terms of public approval or whatever it might be, but I'm actually getting more and more interested in terms of what I amassed in in helping people be successful and helping people live their careers and being empathetic and in being a good leader. And so if you, you're 25 and listening to this, advice there would be a little bit to think about what really matters to you when you wake up in the morning about how you want to feel at the end of the day and what you want people to say about you as a teammate or a boss or a new team member or an ecosystem partner or whatever it might be. And live by those values and get clear on what those values are. You know, honesty without, you know, retaliation is an incredibly important value to how me and my leadership team operate. We don't let things fester. We're honest, but there's no retaliation. It's good. It's done in goodness and it's done with empathy. Empathy is massively important. Coming and showing vulnerability, people coming and saying, I didn't get any sleep last night because I have a three-month baby that's not sleeping throughout the night and I'm not prepared for this meeting is important to me because you can create the support that's needed for everybody to do their best if you understand the support that people need. And I think the world demands it. We're not living in a world where you can work from nine till five and then switch off the rest of the time, especially when we're all working in our homes. Some of us are working in our bedrooms. That divide is kind of disappearing. And so as a leader, I want to be facilitative and supportive to people's lives. And so my first piece of advice would be if you feel lucky, you should probably take the opportunity. And secondly, the values you want to live your life by are not that interchangeable from, I guess, the values you want to lead or be a team member with. And that would be my second piece of advice. And then I guess influencing other people who might not look or feel like you. It's all about learned experience, Sandy. Like people are living the experience that they've learned. So trying to understand the lived experience and the, the learned experience that someone else is in 
even though you can never put yourself in the shoes of somebody else, that starts with empathy. It starts with respect. It starts with listening and to educate oneself on the biases, the privileges, the orthodoxies that we carry into any conversation is also a good place to start. Scott tells a story about how he's always had an entrepreneurial streak from childhood. In his lovely American accent, he says, I've always been an entrepreneur. Looking at your growth story, today you're a leader in business, an entrepreneur, a great storyteller. And for all of these reasons, I had invited you to speak on a leadership panel way before we started this podcast. You couldn't make it. Can't remember why. Maybe you're washing your hair. <laughs> we must get you on a future panel. I'll ask you the same question that I asked Scott. Are there particular traits conditions or experiences in your early life that you think attributed to your success as a leader, an entrepreneur, and a communicator today? Yeah, I mean, it's such a great question, isn't it? Nature Nurture. I mean, Scott's story about him being an entrepreneur was much cooler than anything I'm going to tell you now, where he was sort of selling stuff. <laughs> from the age of four, which you hear quite a lot. I don't have any stories that cool. I wasn't selling anything at the age of four. I, But I do think there is. I mean, I will caveat this before I give my answer with you. Can, I do believe you can learn anything. I mean, I don't, I don't think I can learn how to be a neuroscientist. I think I know my limits. But I think in the whole, if you're inquisitive and curious and you have that humility to say, I want to learn. In a business environment, most things are available to you, right? So I think firstly, I would say, I think you can nurture what you're looking for. But the nature side of things, yeah. I mean, my parents used to tell me stories about how I used to make them sit through, like I think at quite a young age, like six or something, make them sit through these elaborate one woman show stage productions of like plays that I had written I say written, like come up with, produced and was starring in myself. And so I think I've always been super interested in storytelling and communication. I had a drama career all the way up to going to university. And my other option apart from university was actually to go and try and be an actress. But I'm very glad I didn't take that path because I think I, I would have epically failed at that one. So, um, so probably good that I've taken my, my experience into the business world. And then I think there's just one thing I started to notice at school. I was very fortunate to go to a, a very excellent and academic school. And I was a good student. I got my grades, but I was disruptive, I think. Like, not naughty, but disruptive in like, I was kind of always a bit like, but why does it have to be done that way? And why are we only asking these specific questions, especially as you get older, when you're younger, you kind of do the curriculum that you're given. But when you start to get to A-level, and I did politics A-level, and it was my first kind of experiences of a more debate-based, you know, learning experience where it wasn't about here's a curriculum. It was kind of more writing expansive essays and all of that. I remember vividly being that person going sort of, why do we have to do it in this way? And why are we not asking ourselves these questions? You know, and the teacher's treading that really fine line between... I understand where you're going with this, but we also need to get you through school. And I remember in my physics GCSE, I'm not a scientist, Sandy, in my <laughs> physics GCSE for my field work, 
I decided to do an experiment on the viscosity of nail varnish. Yes, I'm being completely <laughs> serious. I would go and buy all these different kinds of nail varnish and I would put them on all different types of surface. So like wood, paper, plastic, whatever. And then I'd put them in the sun. I'd put them in cold closets. I'd put them in the fridge. I'd put a hairdryer on them. <laughs> and I did this entire paper, this field paper on how different textures and heats and things impacted the viscosity of nail varnish. And I kid you not, my physics teacher looked at me at the beginning of this thing, like, I'm going to have to fail this person because of this experiment that she's doing. And actually, I got the top marks that you could for this field experiment and ended up doing, doing much better in this, in this science GCSE than I think I otherwise would have done because because I did it like, I was like, no, I'm going to go, I'm going to follow the physics process. I'm going to use all the equations and I'm going to do the scientific process, but I'm going to do it on something that I think should be allowed to be part of a field experiment in school. And at the time, clearly I was very into nail varnish. So I think I've always been a bit like that. I've always been a bit intellectually disruptive, I think. And, and that's probably why I'm quite a good entrepreneur and innovator. You said not in a naughty way. I think you were too sharp to be naughty, more like genuinely curious and asked a lot of smart questions, which is exactly what strategy consultants do, right? So let's just say you were the delightfully disruptive Lucy Cooper. You're clearly a strong-minded woman, Lucy. You're strong on multiple levels, actually. People comment on your resilience. And let's talk about equity. I'd like to take you there, or lack of it for women. Have you experienced and overcome inequality in the workplace? Yes, I mean, tons. Uh, going to Silicon Valley as a 25-year-old female is a very interesting experience. Brave. <laughs> I think I've experienced this in sort of most places that I have been, I think. And how do I feel about this? I feel the same way I think I feel about white privilege, which is the burden of education and responsibility unfortunately, in most cases, falls on the person who is experiencing the discrimination to try and educate, rectify. And that just needs to stop. That just needs to be undone. We need to educate ourselves on how it feels to not be a woman or a woman, how it feels to not be white, how it feels to not be privileged, and take that responsibility for ourselves Having said that, some of the most amazing allies I have had in my entire career have been men. In fact, I would say all of the most amazing allies until recently have been men. And so it's not a straight story of if you're a woman, you're going to have amazing women mentors and surround yourself with amazing other females and that's what's going to get you through. I think you have to be clear, honest about these situations. I think you have to be completely true to yourself in terms of when something makes you feel uncomfortable. I'm an incredibly privileged position, as I said, in Accenture, where we have a culture where speaking up is supported and you know that you're going to be supported if you speak up. And I know that that's just absolutely not true 
for many other business cultures, let alone other kinds of cultures in the world. And so I, I sit from a position in privilege where I say I can speak up. I think calling out when you're seeing behavior in other people and lending your allyship to that is something that's really important. So calling out when you're seeing behavior that would, you would not find acceptable happening to you, whether that's to any type of community that you either belong to or don't, I think helps. Because here's kind of what I found, Sandy. Actually, nine times out of 10, or a high percentage of the time, it's not conscious. So the person is not really aware that they're doing it. They've just had no one ever say to them, when you do this thing, or you say this thing, it makes me feel this way. Opening up that dialogue and having that conversation. And I have been on the receiving end of this, by the way, with people saying, you do this thing and it makes me feel this way. And you think, wow, thank you so much for bringing this to my attention. Then it's up to the person. You've got to be conscious. You've got to change that bias. You've got to change that orthodoxy and you've got to absolutely put it into practice. Of course, there is a percentage of the time when that's not the case and the that behavior is just completely unacceptable and should not be tolerated. But I would say that the majority is in a position where they are unaware, uneducated, or uneducating themselves. And in most cases, when you share your feedback with them, they say they've never been given that feedback before. And I think it's about if you can being brave and courageous and stepping forward and helping that person to move forward in how they present themselves. And, and sometimes it helps you too. That's kind of the, the kind of line I take, which is to speak up, to share back, to call out when you see it in others, and then to try and open up the dialogue and the conversation. And I think that's kind of how we're going to be moving together as a society as a whole. Okay, you said that speaking up and having a voice is encouraged at Accenture. And that makes me think about leadership equality. And so my question is, in your position of leadership at Accenture, how are you an enabler, an advocator, and a beneficiary of leadership equality? I think you're never done learning. I've had to have some real lessons in humility as I've gone into positions of leadership, which is you might think you've kind of sorted out a specific part of leadership and then something happens and you realize you haven't. And so I think accepting there's always more to learn. There's always more opinions or people to be empathetic towards, opinions to kind of educate yourself on, needs changing dynamics that you need to open yourself up to is, I think, a good starting place to come from. I think I think sharing what you know and learn about leadership is always important. But I think gone are the days of like, there are these leadership manuals, you know, that we you used to come into business and be like, if you do these 10 things, you'll be a good leader. I think those days are gone. I think leadership is fluid. I learn a huge amount from other leaders telling me what's worked for them you said, do I do anything that I think is enabling for my team? I think, I, I think I'm think i a harsh critic of myself in that respect. So the company I was talking about to you earlier, which was Fable Plus, which is the psychological safety company that we've had join our Accenture family, I'd use their technology and their scan on my leadership team. And it's about to be rolled out to my entire team where I can understand how psychologically safe people are feeling at any one time. 
Now, that's not, and it's all completely anonymous, so I don't know who it is. I get given the view on how the group are feeling. Now, that's not necessarily a reflection on me as a leader because it's not about their relationship to me. It's actually about their relationship to everybody else in the team. So it's how psychologically safe is the team feeling. But obviously, as a leader, you want as many people feeling psychologically safe or as in flow on this quadrant as you possibly can. And so how I then have to make decisions about how the team operates, is run, what resources I need to give them, what time and space I need to give them to, as a team, try and get and keep as many people in flow or recovery as possible is really, is really important. And the first time we did the scan, like the results were not all the good results that you wanted to see. And it's that humility of going, okay, there's work for everybody to do. And that includes me. So that's the only other thing I would add, which is Fable Plus has been an extraordinary tool for me. I feel like I'm doing their personal PR. There are lots of other tools out there, but they've been an extraordinary tool for me and they're what works for our team right now. Not being afraid of that data of those tools because it might tell you something that you don't particularly want to see or hear. You know, that ignorance that we talked about earlier is like, just got to put that and your ego to one side and say, okay, well, we all want to get to a place where we're all happy and engaged. And so doing as much of that stuff as you can, I think is important and looking for that feedback, whether that's from friends, peers, people who work for you and understanding how you seem and how you come across and how you can course correct on those things is a lot of the journey. And um, it's fun and incredibly rewarding when you have your whole team smiling, happy, laughing, inputting, being their most creative selves on a meeting. And, And I don't know why anyone wouldn't want to cultivate that. This technology intrigues me. So Accenture with Fable Plus can now assess levels of psychological safety, right? So in today's fast-paced world where managers are so time-crunched and might struggle to spend as much face time as they'd like with their team, this tech is a dream because people are a company's best asset. And you're being trained on rolling out this technology by Fable Plus? There's no like training I'm going through, but the founder of Fable Plus, Ilhan, has I've asked him to take me on as his protege uh, so that I can start to understand the sort of 15 years of experience he's been building up with Amy Edmondson and HBS on this. HBS, Harvard Business School for our listeners. So um, I'm starting to understand more about the ingredients, the motivations, the processes, how you measure the data that you look at to determine psychological safety. Yeah. So cool, right? I find this fascinating. There must be an app as well, no? I'm sure there is. Fable Plus have got a desktop application at the moment. I'm sure they probably have an app and I just haven't learned about it yet. Fable Plus, a brilliant growth and innovation story. So smart, so Accenture, very apt for this podcast. And I'm sure the CEO will be chuffed to bits, Lucy, because we've done a super promotional job for them. (laughs) Lucy, I invariably ask a fun, random question at the end of our catch-up. So today's question, three words that describe Accenture's culture. Three words that describe Accenture's culture. Um... (laughs) Smart. Supportive and valuable. 
Lucy, you did it. <laughs> so smart. Everybody Accenture is so smart. One of the things I love the most about my job is that I'm just surrounded by these people who are just extraordinarily smart and that makes coming to work quite fun. Supportive. Accenture's been ranked in the top 10 of the world's most kind of inclusive and diverse companies um, for many years now. And it is incredibly supportive. The Ellen Shook and, and the team of HR and HR leadership have created something really unique. You really feel like the firm is there for you when you need it. I had to take some time off to recover from COVID, like many of us now are in the situation of. And then they made it just this completely seamless, like as wonderful as could be experience. I didn't feel any stress in taking that recovery time. And I think that's massively important. And determined or value orientated, I guess, be my last one, which is Accenture's working really hard to pivot itself towards, you know, what Julie, our CEO, is calling 360 degree value. And that's about coming to work every day and thinking about the whole value that we create when we we talk to our clients. Are we helping with their diversity and inclusion agendas? Are we helping upskill and reskill their people? Are we being a partner that can help them deliver on their sustainability agenda? It's a new thing. It's been part of Julie's strategy since she's come in as CEO, but I've, we're really starting to feel that, I think, in the culture. And But people are determined, you know, when you have 550,000 incredibly smart people around you, they're determined to deliver that value. And so you feel that as well. So there's four. I'm sorry, I, I gave you four. You cheated. I love <laughs> all four. Lucy Cooper, Head of Innovation at Accenture and maybe tomorrow's CEO, Chief Emotions Officer, thanks to Fable Plus. My words, thank you. And here's Lucy's conversation with Scott. You were basically inventing a market before it existed, which I would call invention, actually, rather than innovation. And so you've really been right at the cutting edge and talked a lot about the conditions for you to be successful and how actually for a long time you weren't successful before you were. So how, after all of those years of experience, would you define innovation now? <laughs> it's funny because I don't really think about defining it. And I definitely didn't invent something. And, and maybe that... that that to me is the heart of innovation. It is not invention. Exactly. Invention is something very different. And in my story, I invented nothing, but what I did was combine things. And I think that's more of innovation. It's saying, okay, I didn't create the internet. I didn't create the World Wide Web. I think that was Al Gore. Tim no. Berners-Lee. I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, absolutely. Tim Berners-Lee. Um, invented that. I didn't create the music business. I didn't invent anything. But what I saw was an opportunity to combine things in a way that they hadn't been combined before. To me, that's closer to innovation, to see what else is out there and say, how can I put them in, a, in some amalgamation that creates something new and novel and unique? Okay. I like that. That's super simple. I'll give you long answers. I no, that simple is good. I'm gonna write. I'm gonna write a piece where I put everybody's definitions. <laughs> Accenture, we talk about in innovation, leading innovation revolutions, and helping our clients fuel innovation revolutions. And I think it, I think it can be a misnomer to give the impression that it's something that happens in six months, and it it can take an entire decade. 
But I think there's some important ingredients in a revolution that you don't get without, which is like you're taking people on the journey. It, you can rarely do it on your own. It has to be something where you go outside of the four walls of whatever your corporate kind of structure or DNA might look like. And you've got to be kind of like brave and courageous and sort of understand you're going to go on lots of different journeys and have to forge new paths. What are you seeing in the music industry now? What's going on at the moment? What would you say would be the sort of new revolutions that you're seeing? All right. So there, there's the immediate ones and then there's the next wave ones. So as we're kind of shifting into the new ones, so that those new ones are gaming, fitness, and social. These are huge opportunities. And again, in the music business, it's not like gaming and music haven't existed before. But when you have things like Fortnite and Roblox, it takes it to another level. It is not a little bit of music in a video game. It is an entire experience in a metaverse. And that's what's changing. When you look at fitness, of course, there's been music and fitness. You take a, a class at the gym and there's music playing while people are sweating to the hits, right? That's always existed. But then you bring in something like Peloton and you go, oh, we just put that on steroids. And then, of course, social, because social used to be promotion, not revenue generation. But now we're seeing that actually we're generating revenue from social. And social has become, well, a hybrid. I mean, we understand what Instagram and, and Facebook are, that, that now are revenue generating sources. But what is TikTok? Is TikTok social? I, I think it's a social media platform, but not in the in the traditional sense. So those are the kind of current areas that we're shifting to in that revolutionary to, you know, now it's, it's starting to pay off. In the next phase, though, I see a lot in AR, VR, and blockchain. A massive believer in, in these technologies. And the, the way I think it goes for us is that it seems very futuristic and out there at first until it becomes so natural you don't make the distinctions anymore. So maybe think of it like, oh, I don't know. There was a time when you did marketing and then you did digital marketing. Well, to us, it's just marketing. You know, It's not like there's a digital department that only does digital marketing. It's part of a whole marketing campaign. As a matter of fact, it's probably heavily weighted to digital. You know, there was a time when you had your digital presence and your real world presence, you know, but I don't make a distinction between what I post on social media and who I am in real life. It's the same person. It's not, there's my virtual self and my physical self. It's the same self. And I'm starting to see that now, you know, if you think of like AR, augmented reality, the first fun uses would have been things like Pokemon Go. The idea of AR, where you're taking digital information and overlaying it into a physical environment. But if I think of something as basic today as Google Maps, as AR, if you pull out your phone and you're walking or driving and using Google Maps, I mean, that's AR. It's overlaying digital information on the real world. And when you arrive at your destination after using Google Maps, you don't go, Whew, that was amazing. I just had this amazing AR experience. 
you don't even think it's different than the real world. You're not making a distinction between the traditional physical world and the augmented reality world. It's the same world. Well, we're about to get there with things like virtual reality, because where we are today in virtual reality is there's regular reality of the physical world. And then you put on the big, heavy, clunky headsets and you have a VR experience and you take it off and go, wow, I just had a VR experience. But imagine as we go forward, you won't make that distinction anymore. It will just be an experience. And of course, some of it's virtual and some of it's not, but we won't draw that line anymore where that exists. So I think that's a big part of the future. And I think music is and entertainment and sport um, and fitness and social will all move into the VR space, but it'll take some time. Yeah, and it comes down, I think, a lot to, you know, the technology that's available and then people wanting to change. And then, of course, being able to to make money from it. And I, I really think of innovation falling at that intersection between new models, new business models for growth, kind of radical cultural change and new disruptive technologies, or they don't have to be new new technologies, but technologies that can be taken into a new use case and adopted somewhere else. Do you agree with that? I agree with that, but I would I would only look at it slightly different because I think those things are linear. It's not that they come together at the same time. I think it, it actually goes in order. And again, you can think of it like with the World Wide Web, where it starts with technology. <laughs> there was a cultural shift and the, the world demanded the web. The world had no idea what the fucking web was, but Tim Berners-Lee had a vision of how to do it. And so I think it starts with new tech, which then people go, but we need a business model around it. Again, also like the web, it was like, okay, but how do you make money from this? And then ultimately you get an entire cultural shift because if, if you don't get the tech first and you don't have the business model, then it's never going to drive the cultural shift in the end. I, I don't think. I it's it interesting I don't know. Though, I can because... make examples of, other, of the opposite though. Yeah, I mean, I think most innovators would tell you it starts with a need, right? You're trying to solve a customer or a societal pain point. And, yeah. you know, if you look at the very first Tesla, it was a battery stuck on the back of a Lotus car. Like the technology definitely did not exist. He had a vision to to transform the car industry. And he thought that there was a need there. And he said, I'm going to figure out a way to do it. So I do think of them as combinatorial. I think of them as you you have to solve the need first and then you take small steps in each of the other areas and you sort of confirm and reconfirm through your experimentation process. Again, it's hard to disagree with you. I can think of examples like who knew I needed an iPhone where I could pinch and, and expand things until I had it. I don't think consumers were waiting for it. Matter of fact, they were quite happy with their Nokia clamshell phones until they had that. And even I think people were happy with their phones before there were mobile phones. So it's weird. I think you need a visionary with some technology before the public will accept it. And maybe it's this kind of ping pong back and forth of, you know, test and learn, test and learn, test and yeah. learn. And, and then you look back and you go, oh yeah, everyone, how did we live without it? But I don't think people were clamoring for the web. I don't think people were clamoring for mobile phones until somebody had a vision and some technology and delivered them. 
No, I totally agree. I think the, the visionary piece is very important. I do think it's a ping pong backwards as, you know, what is it? Facebook releases a new feature like every 16 seconds or something like that. You know, they're constantly <laughs> ping ponging back and forth. Where do you, a lot of people ask me, what do you read, Lucy? What do you listen to? Where do you get your information from? Like, I'm a big fan of, you know, newsletters that I get in my inbox. So like Stratechery, which is, you know, all about kind of West Coast innovation, mainly in tech. The information is very good. I've got podcasts that I listen to. You know, Reid Hoffman's Masters of Scale is sublime. The, the Anderson Horror A16Z podcast is very good. What about you? Where do you get your information on so, you, so you're one step ahead of everybody else? Two ways. And one of them was taken away with COVID. Not COVID as in I had it. One of them was taken away because the world changed. One is I almost never look at what's going on in the music industry to understand what's going on in the music industry. Of course, I read the updates of what's happening. You know, what's happening at our competitors at Sony and Universal and what's happening with other artists. I stay on top of that. But it's kind of like the stock market. If you're following, I don't know, Apple stock, the, the way to decide should you buy or sell or what do you think is going to happen with a price point is not by just looking at Apple stock. <laughs> it's you got to look at everything else. You got to go, well, what's happening? There's a mine in Africa that's getting a precious metal that goes into the foam, but there was a strike or they can't get it or there was something happened in China. Like you look at all these other industries like if you want to know what's happening with Apple, look at what's happening with the mining industry. <laughs> you know, that might tell you a lot about what's going to happen. So for me, I'm looking at what's happening in what are seemingly unrelated industries and seeing how that can apply to what we're doing in, or have an impact in, in what we're doing. What are some of the industries you look to? Things like 5G. If you're releasing a new Ed Sheeran record, what the hell do you care about what's happening in the, the 5G consortium? Except you better know what's going on and how people may be delivering things. You know, so that's the mobile industry. But, but I'm looking at, at lots of industries. You know, in many ways, the music industry has always been impacted by outside forces. So everyone got used to it with the global pandemic. But I would say we've always had that. If you go back to 1999 and the introduction of Napster or even go further, you know, with the launch of the World Wide Web, if you asked anyone in the music business in 1995 about why are you looking at that kind of technology, what does that have to do with the music business? They would think that makes no sense. There is no connection. But there was a massive connection by the time Napster hit in 99. And we understood that outside forces impacted what we're doing. And so a moment ago, when I talked about fitness and gaming and social, what does that have to do with it? I mean, it's starting to seem pretty obvious what gaming industry has to do with the music industry, what the fitness industry has to do with the music industry. So it's looking at, at those things. The other way that I always found information was at conferences and events and Prior to the, the lockdown, I would be in a different city every week. And people often think, wow, what are you doing all that travel for? And, but if I went on stage and said, blah, 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 VR, blah, 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 blockchain. Sure enough, right at the end, people come up to me and go, 
I'm working on this little thing. And so you really are on the bleeding edge of what's happening because none of it is built, none of it has been launched, but people are starting to share with you what they're thinking about, what they're working on before it's even a thing. If I talked about blockchain five, six, even 10 years ago, people will start coming up to me and saying, this is what we're doing. And I'll be like, hmm, very interesting. And blockchain is one of those technologies that I think is going to be as transformational to people and business and the world as the World Wide Web was. Are you looking at it from like a digital rights management point of view and how you process and publish music and how it's kept and interrelates to all the other platforms that it may or may sit on? Or do you have a different vision for it? I think it goes in two parts. Absolutely, in terms of managing rights, it will be a much better system. Right now, it, to be clear, it's not. Just having things in a database is easier than, than placing them on a blockchain and doing you know billions of transactions, which it yeah. couldn't do today. But remember, I was on the web in the mid-90s when you couldn't see a photo hear music or, or watch a video. So I understood and people were like, yeah, but I can't do any of those things. Yeah, but it will. <laughs> so that's one part of it. The other is, I'll explain my point of view if I step back a minute and think of it as three layers. So the bottom layer would be the internet. The internet was essentially a series of protocols. Protocols is another word for language. So if you're in a room with people and one person speaks German, somebody else speaks Mandarin, one speaks Portuguese, one speaks Spanish, somebody speaks Finnish, and you go, we can't communicate. What if we all use one language? Let's go with English. That would be a protocol so they could communicate. So the internet was a series of protocols that allowed the military and governments and some universities to speak the same language and communicate. When Tim Berners-Lee launched the World Wide Web, it was a new series of protocols that sits on top of the internet. It's not separate from the internet. It's a new series of protocols. And those protocols allowed every website to talk to every other website and those websites to then talk to a client, meaning a browser. So when you think about things like TCP, IP, internet protocol, HTTP, hypertext transfer protocol, all those Ps, that's what's allowing it to happen. What I see with blockchain is it's a layer that sits on top of the World Wide Web, which is a new series of protocols that in many ways disintermediates the middle man, the middle person. The first use of blockchain was with Bitcoin. And everyone knows Bitcoin or at least heard of it, but most people don't really realize that there's no such thing really as Bitcoin. It's not a company. There's not a, a president. They don't have offices. They don't pay taxes because it isn't a thing. Bitcoin is a protocol. It's a protocol for allowing the transfer of value without having an intermediary. Because if I wanted to hand you money, if I had a banknote, let's say a $10 bill, I could hand you a $10 bill if we were in the same room. But because we're on a, a Zoom call, I can't. I would have to do it digitally. But in order for me to pass you money digitally, I have to go through a whole bunch of intermediaries, my bank to a clearinghouse, to your bank, to you, go through all these people. And so Bitcoin was a protocols allow us 
to speak directly <laughs> and to transfer that value. And so now you want to think about the, the wider world and go, well, what else can be done directly where currently we need to be on a single platform with all the users on this same platform, all doing these things? How come we can't do this one-on-one -on -one with a series of protocols? So 101 for blockchain, uh, <laughs> beginner's guide. No, it's great. You've talked a little bit about fitness, social, health, AR, VR, blockchain. Have you got a vision for innovation vis-a-vis -vis Warner Music over the next five years? And kind of can you share a little bit about how you're going to apply some of your big brain thinking into sort of execution on moving Warner forward? Well, yeah, there's, there's a few things that I want to accomplish that I have not yet accomplished. Year one was my, my listening tour, which I didn't think it was going to be a year-long listening tour, but it was really just trying to understand things. What I want to start to do is to imbue emotions into the technology and tools that people use at the organization. So if you think of it another way, if you think about something like social media, like Facebook. So Facebook is, I don't want to use the word addictive, but social media in general is quite addictive. People keep coming back and using it over and over and over again. Because what they didn't try and do was recreate friendship. What they tried to do was recreate the emotions of friendship. So gossip and belonging and outrage and status, you know, these are things you get from friendship. And so they imbued that into the experience of using the, the app or the platform. And I'm thinking, well, why does it have to be so soulless with the technology we use at our organization? Can we think about imbuing that in our technologies? So, you know, what are the things we like about work? So I'm not trying to recreate work, but what do we like about work? We like collaboration. We like celebration. We like serendipity. You know, oh, somebody pops in and tells me something I didn't know. And I had no idea that was going to happen today. So how can I start to infuse that into the technology as an organization that we use so that people really want to lean in because we're in a super cool business of music and we use technology. So why shouldn't it be cool and fun and engaging that makes people want to lean in? And we don't have to optimize around things like outrage. We can optimize around all the positive things we do and make a, a better impact. So Scott, obviously, the pandemic's been pretty disruptive for a lot of industries. I think for music, you've had big disruption in terms of no live events, no big concerts, it makes it really difficult for artists to be able to tour financially or economically and asks the question like, when do you release the big album? You know, but conversely, you've got tons of people sitting at home listening to music, perhaps more in the four walls of their own home than they've ever done before. We've got my Peloton sitting downstairs. So there's new revenue stream options for people. What have been some of the kind of lessons that you've learned doing your job actually very early on, as well as you were saying in your new job, when I don't know if you're still trying to get around and see everybody, you know, I started a, a new role at Accenture and, you know, have met my, my leadership team once. So um, I think there's personal challenges, but what have been some of the big things that you've learned? Well, I mean, first from the music side, because we're, you know, on recorded music, we're not a live music industry uh, venture. So 
we recognize that people never stop listening to music. And as a matter of fact, they're listening to more than ever. So on that sense, you know, putting aside all the tragedy of COVID-19, the pandemic, people that got ill, people that couldn't generate money from a business side, it actually was our biggest year ever. Amazing. Um, and a lot of artists got super creative. Dua Lipa was kind of first out of the gate of a superstar artist to say, I'm releasing my new album during this and ran the entire campaign, which is coming close to the end. You know, we're talking 18 months completely during the pandemic and found interesting ways to reach audiences, to tour, to connect with people. So for some, it was, I don't want to diminish all the, the disruption that, that actually occurred, but one big learning was people never stop listening to music and never will. And so we have to meet whatever challenges are out there from the fan and the audiences and the consumers and the artists and say, all right, this is the playing field. This is the challenge. What are we going to do? Because we can't just stop. I think it's really interesting you saying that. I mean, we've spoken to some telcos who said that they found like a real renaissance during COVID of them seeing themselves as a public service to talk about the the pain and the disruption and the loss that people were feeling like that they really took it upon themselves to make sure people continued to stay connected and that they almost entered the realm of public service because if you can't be near people that you love is to at least be able to connect with them. I think music's quite an interesting parallel to that. A lot of people were isolated and alone. Music has this incredible ability to connect and heal and genuinely soothe and calm people. Did you have those kinds of conversations? We had lots of those conversations, like trying to take the temperature of the room to understand what should be released and when. And, you know, it was quite interesting because there was a, first of all, there was no one right way or, or one wrong way, but interesting surprises. People wanted uplifting music. <laughs> there was a real deep dive into catalog, you know, like comfort, people going back to some of the classics. So we saw that, but everything happened. And during this whole thing, a whole new class of artists broke, but they didn't break the old way. The old way would have been, you know, a group of people get together, learn to play some instruments, then get a van and tour around little by little building. But that's not necessarily the only way to do it. So now you see artists that have never played a traditional instrument. I want to be clear, it's not a difference in talent. People that are talented find whatever tools are in front of them to express themselves. And when I was a kid, it was picking up a guitar. But today it's logging on and, and learning some beats and rapping and singing and going on to TikTok and building massive audiences of millions of millions of people without ever going through that old journey. There's a new journey of how people break. And so our, our role is to support that. But equally, from the business side, what we learned, it's defining clearer the difference between, let's say, work and business. And what I mean is, I was always traveling around the world. So I worked from wherever, a hotel room, it didn't matter. But what the entire company learned was you can actually work from anywhere. 
If work means opening up your laptop, checking email, looking at a spreadsheet, a contract, a PowerPoint, I can do that from fucking anywhere. Business, however, I've almost never done in an office. Business I've done at a lunch or a dinner or at a conference, a hotel lobby, in a studio. Like I've done business, not so much of it in an office. So we have to rethink. So what the fuck do we have an office for? You know, what, are we really telling people, wake up, take a shower, eat breakfast, groom yourselves, buy new clothes, commute, and two hours later, open your laptop to start to work? You could have done that two hours earlier without all the stress and related to that. Have we not recognize that we're breaking out of the industrial revolution instead of going into offices and seeing rows of cubicles where everyone's there at their appointed time, 9 a.m., who whistle blows, it's time to begin to work. Like, really? (laughs) Is this a factory assembly line or is this the 21st century? So we've realized that we can work differently, as in remotely, And there's times to come together because I'm not against people coming together, but why should I come to the office? Surely not to work, but I might want to come to collaborate, to brainstorm, to do all those other things that are really amazing about the workspace. And so now I'm trying to also see how do we connect the technology we're providing our people that matches a new work experience, whether you're working from home or coming into an office in a collaborative sense. How is that all underpinned by new technology and changing the very nature of what a modern office is going forward? I think there's a whole two-hour podcast (laughs) on the future of work. Um, You studied psychology at college, which is a, a real sort of love of mine. And I don't think you can have innovation without psychological safety. I think you have to be able to make people feel psychologically like they are able to come and bring all of the character traits that are needed to be able to innovate, whether that's employees of Warner Music or your artists or your ecosystem partners or your technology providers or whatever. How do you kind of put the mind and sort of the innovation together when you sort of just turn up every day and do your work wherever it's from? You know, thinking about it on different levels, going back to the workspace, you could almost see that the modern office was optimized around this kind of real alpha personality trait. If you want to do well in an office, it's like, how are you going to speak up and get ahead? And then, oh, it's drinks after work and all this. And it optimizes for a certain personality trait. This work from home might optimize for a different personality trait that maybe you're a little more, I don't know, withdrawn, less talented, not not as smart. You know, It's just the social part of it. It was always the struggle you had at work. And maybe the introverts can rise in this new world and the extroverts might be a little more challenged in this new world. That's an interesting dynamic that I'm not sure anyone's really looked into to say, hmm, this could change certain outcomes. Also, because I I spend so much time with technology, one of the things I recognize is, I don't know, maybe I call it a certain kind of digital learned helplessness. So, you know, from my psych background, I I actually remember in university learning 
about Martin Seligman, who, who was the man that, that coined the phrase learned helplessness. And he was doing these experiments in the late 60s and early 70s with animals, which were kind of gruesome. By the way, I'm a vegan, so I'm not for animal testing. What he would do among many of these kind of semi-gruesome experiments, because he was trying to do like behavioral experiments a la Pavlov. So, you know, stimulus response. And so he would give animals, it could be a dog, it could be a rat, a home where they were living. And so here's your bed, your food, your water. And then here's another home that you don't live in, also with a bed, food, and water. And he wanted to know how many times would I have to electrocute these animals until they go over to their new home? And that was as simple as a test. How many times, what intensity? But what he found was something quite extraordinary that many of the animals wouldn't leave no matter how many times he electrocuted them, no matter how intense the shock was, they would stay. Given an out, given a better opportunity, they remained in this state. And he called that learned helplessness. That explains why people stay in abusive relationships. You're shown an out, why would you stay? And you get very familiar with what you know, even if it's bad. And so when I'm thinking about change of the organization, that this is really always present with me. This like, you can say, stop using a spreadsheet. Here's a better way to manage that data. Yeah, but I know the spreadsheet has worked for me. Yeah, but I, I see you have post-it notes on your monitor. I know, but it's always worked. I get on, but we can do this better. So not a post-it note. You can access the data on any device wherever you are in the world. But if it's a post-it note, it's only on your monitor. So there is this bit of digital learned helplessness out there. And so, you know, that's part of what my job is, is to kind of not just think about, you know, what should be done, but how we're going to get people to move into that new environment, not just say that there's an out, but how are we literally going to bring them over there? I always like people. I always like asking people what advice they would give that would feel either counterintuitive or is unpopular to hear. Share with us some of your nuggets <laughs> of advice that perhaps are unpopular to hear or counterintuitive. It's funny because I didn't go to business school, but a friend of mine did, or lots of friends of mine did, and one of them, uh, Paul Sinclair, was telling me about the three P's: product, process, and people. And the point is. Anybody can build a fucking product or design a process. The hard part is the people part. Um, yeah. And nobody seems to tell you that of the, you know, gazillions of the apps that are out there that you could download on your mobile phone. It's like, yeah, anyone can build an app. How are you going to connect that to people? How are you going to change people to use what you want, even if they don't have any great desire to change, even if it's better? And so it turns out when I look at my role at the organization, it has almost nothing to do with being the interface of technology and our people. It has everything to do with our people. Like, it doesn't matter if I have an idea about blockchain. It doesn't matter if I have an idea about VR and AR and the future of that. It's really about how we're going to lead people. I lead is the wrong word because I'm not even leading them. It's how are we going to support the people in the company so that they can use all this amazing stuff that's going to be available to them, not just today, but in the, in the future. Scott, 
you have another job. I have one job. Well, I'd beg to differ because <laughs> you co-founded Cyborg Nest, your second startup, about six years ago, which you've managed to keep alive despite taking on a C-level role at a multinational. It's a fascinating endeavor, but it's more than just an idea. Tell us about it and where you're at with the product. So to be clear, I, I co-founded a, a company called the Cyborg Nest with my partner, Livia Babbitts, a few years ago. And in, <laughs> it, it's complicated, but, but I will say this, that in December of 2016, I inserted a couple of titanium rods into my chest and attached a circuit board with a few hundred components. And the idea was that I was creating a new sense and becoming a cyborg. Wow. And saying, what else could I experience instead of, as Neil Harbison would say, instead of just using technology, I wanted to become technology. More recently, I actually stepped off the board of Cyborg Nest because I have my Warner venture, but also have been developing in my free time a new device or a new sense. What I developed was something called the North Sense, which was the sense of the magnetic field of the planet, which is a sense that lots of species have, like migratory birds, sharks. They're even saying dogs have this, the sense of the magnetic field of the planet. You know when a dog's outside and it's about to poop and it spins in circles <laughs> and then it stops? Nope. <laughs> Apparently, it stops on the north-south axis. And uh, Nope. I didn't know that, Scott, but then I never really paid much attention to pooping dogs other than to avoid them. <laughs> so be before I implanted myself, I would do kind of a little experiment where I'd have a, a compass app on my phone. And when I'd be walking and I'd see a dog doing that activity, I'd pull out my compass and kind of, you know, line up with the dog to see where they would do it. And, and sure enough, not 100% of the time, and maybe it was a bit creepy for the, for the dog owners to see some guy like kneeling next to him with a compass. <laughs> yeah, I'd be a teeny bit baffled if I was the dog. <laughs> but nevertheless, lots of species seem to have this. So now what I've developed is the North Sense 2. If this thing is going inside you, what does it look like? A little capsule about the size of a, I'd say that's a long grain rice. So viewers on YouTube will be able to see the chip that you're showing us now. And inside of that, I put a little circuit board. And in that circuit board, there's quite a bit happening on there. And what I'll do is I will implant that directly into my chest. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then I will connect it to another circuit board which has a, an antenna and a reader, and it'll be a much more sophisticated and less painful version of my North Sense 1. And I'll be doing that over the summer. I don't know what you're doing on your summer holidays, but for me, I'm implanting some chips in my body to give me a new <laughs> sense. Well, I'll be planting too, but there'll be geraniums in my garden this summer. <laughs> Dear listeners, leave a comment and let me know if you'd like Scott to return and tell us if you did place the North Star 
tattoo chip inside his chest. And if he did develop a sixth sense, and we'll invite him back for a part two. And whilst you're there, subscribe because we'll bring in a selected few subscribers to watch the show live. What are you hoping that this new chip will achieve? And are you going to get rid of the old one? Yeah, the old one. So the old one, it, it was quite a, a painful experience. So it's certainly not something I would recommend to people. And, and just to be clear, I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty regular middle-aged guy. You know, I don't have <laughs> tattoos and piercings. And you see, I, I work at a company. There's nothing strange or odd about me. But <laughs> Strange or odd, no. But you're not ordinary either, more extraordinary. <laughs> I do want to kind of start to normalize this behavior. And, and so. And what does normalizing this mean? If you think about senses, the idea of having senses is to say there's information outside of your body. We're not talking about what's happening in you. Your senses allow you to interact and connect with people and your environment. And all senses work the same way. So if my sense of sight, let's say light waves and photons enter my eye, they hit the back of the eye where the retina is, the retina is connected to the optic nerve, and that photon of light is converted into an electric impulse or an electric signal. When that electric signal reaches the brain, it then converts again into electrochemical impulse. If I taste something, I have a taste bud. And it's got a receptor and a, a molecule sits perfectly inside that receptor. And when it falls in there, it sends an electric signal that goes into the brain and again is converted to an electrochemical impulse. And so all your senses work the same way. There's outside information comes to the body, it's converted to an electric signal, and then it changes itself in the brain and your brain then creates some reality around it. And it says, well, what does it all mean? What does this mean, this photon of light? And we, we create the notion of the color blue or red and imbue it with emotions. You know, we hear sound, which is just air getting pushed into our ear, which, which vibrates. And then at the very end, it, you know, it, it sends an electric signal up into the brain. And what does it mean to us? It means beautiful music. So our brain interprets it, all of this. My idea now is to say, can I be more human? Because sadly, biological evolution only gave humans, but every other species, just enough senses to survive. It didn't give us more because if we're talking about light, we know that the light spectrum is, is much greater than the visual spectrum. We see what we see, but we also know that there's infrared and ultraviolet. And the light spectrum is very wide. We see a narrow band of it, just enough so we as humans can survive. But we live outside of biological evolution. We're already living outside of it and using technology in, in different ways. So my idea is... How can I become more human by sensing more? Because if our senses are designed so that we can connect with our environment and people, then the more we can connect, the better. So if we were to do like a very simple thought experiment, 
So we're talking now, what if one by one, I took away your senses? I took away your sense of smell and taste, and then I took away your sense of touch and your vision. Now the only sense you have is my voice, and now, boom, I take away your sense of hearing. Now you have no senses. You have your brain, your intellect, all your memories, but could you have any connection with the environment around you? Could you have any connection with people? Now, one by one, we start turning back on your senses. Ooh, I turn on your hearing. Now you can hear me. You're starting to have a connection. You turn on your, your sight. Now you have a deeper connection. And your smell and your taste and your touch. And every time I add back in one of your senses, your ability to connect is that much deeper. All I'm saying is, what if we don't stop at five? What if we add a six one? Wow. Wouldn't you therefore have a deeper connection to the people in your lives and the environment you live in? You didn't need an MBA. You were born to build better and innovate. I promised our listeners a treat because I know you know how to tell a story and what a story. You've gone from launching a record company to launching a sixth sense, from building technology to becoming technology. And in between, you've taken on the world's largest record label to tread on new and innovative paths and and disrupt old ways. Not a job for the faint-hearted, but if anyone can, it's you, Scott, because when you talk, we listen. Warner Music Group's first chief innovation officer and co-founder of The Orchard, the one and only much adored and respected Scott Cohen. Thank you. This is the Grow In Podcast. And in the next growth story, Lucy and I find out what it takes to head all things digital and innovation globally at one of the world's largest and coolest drinks brands and what it means to take it to the next level. Diageo was one of those organizations that always fascinated me because it has that mix of having some incredible legacy brands. So you have brands like Johnny Walker and Guinness that are hundreds of years old. For me, it was really the curiosity to see somebody that's best in class in their industry. How do they do that? In Diageo, most people, when they talk about innovation, they talk about the stuff in the bottle. And we have some of the greatest, if not the greatest, uh, liquid scientists in the world. The stuff I look at is specifically the the beyond-the-bottle innovation. That is the global head of digital innovation at Diageo, where the spirit of innovation goes beyond the bottle. Subscribe now so you're one of the first to be in company with us when the next growth story goes live. Real stories curated with love for you.